Today's guest is one of the most influential figures in the harmonica world. He's played professionally for more than 40 years, he wrote the Harp Handbook, and is a consultant for Hona. He's been closely involved in a lot of the great developments of the instrument that we know and love. He is Steve Baker. Hi Steve, how are you doing today? Hi Tomlin, um, I'm fine thank you, under the circumstances, out in the country about 60 kilometres south of Hamburg, uh, where things are quiet and peaceful, so yeah. Could be worse, you know. That sounds pretty blissful. Uh, although I was chatting to uh, Constantin Reinfeld. I think I think you you guys know each other. Oh yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> I'm, was... I'm one of the people who discovered Constantine. I've been following him since he was 14, so wow. I know him quite well. Yeah, a phenomenal player. But uh, he was saying that uh, lockdown's still pretty pretty serious in Germany. Oh fuck yeah! It's really uh, uh, basically. Uh, I think the Germans handled it very well the first wave but then they got a bit complacent and forgot to plan ahead and didn't listen to the epidemiologists so now we got a pretty high incident fortunately where I am it's fairly easy it's not a high incidence um but you know we're right out in the country so it's it's you know but Constantine is in Hamburg of course where things are a little bit different yeah, it's uh, well, it's it's frustrating everywhere. It's very weird when I chat to students in other parts of the world, and they're telling me that they're going to jam sessions and playing gigs with their bands, and I'm just, I, I'm <laughs> kind of blown away that they're they're able to do that. Uh, also, slightly slightly nervous for them because it's. Uh, you're not kidding. Uh, I don't see here, I don't see any real likelihood. I mean, we're in constant contact with organisers, club owners, uh, you know, people like this. And most of them here have written off 2021. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's, that's not surprising at all. No, um, it's realistic. We've had to do it with a number of events. I mean, I had a workshop coming up in three months in Croatia. Ain't happening uh spa is online for the second year running and the world harmonica festival i fear we won't be able to do it because i can't really imagine the organizational aspects of having 500 harmonica players all close together hyperventilating in a confined space yeah. you know i mean just the the just controlling vaccinations and tests and all this sort of shit it's too difficult for any kind of organization that isn't very well staffed you know like yeah extensively no. staffed to do it no doubt whatsoever. But I, I'm assuming that as soon as you get the go-ahead, you're going to be jonesing to do workshops and gigs and things like that? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, I've, I've always been primarily a live performer. I mm -hmm. do workshops. Of course, I like doing workshops. Uh, I've taught a great deal, but my main focus has always been on playing concerts. And I play as a general rule about, you know, in a, now it's not as many as it used to be, but it's still, I do, I guess I do 80 gigs a year mm -hmm. on a, in a normal year, which is quite a bit, you know what I mean? It's like most weekends are gone kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I'll be very glad to get out and play again, but uh, I'm mindful of the problems involved for organizers because there's a whole lot of, um, 
a whole lot of constraints which make it very, very difficult for people to put on concerts, like the necessity to uh, check liability. You know, mm. it's, uh, it's very complicated. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's completely insane. I was chatting to Todd Parrott about, uh, he just did a concert uh, not not that long ago, first one in about a year, and he said he was playing in a fifteen hundred capacity venue uh, to a hundred people who were all mm. two meters apart, <laughs> spread mm. out through the, the the venue. And it's uh, well, it's not very practical. And as as a as a performer, it's really difficult <clears throat> to get excited about an audience when when it's like that. Um, you know, you, you yeah, want people to be know. cheek by jowl and. It's, it feels better, but for me, to be quite honest, I'm just happy to play at all for people. I mean, I've enjoyed the streams that I've done, and I did. I think I played a total of four live concerts since the start of lockdown last year, uh, which uh, two of them were outside uh, with people with social distancing. One was in a park, just sort of mm -hmm. in the middle of nowhere, playing into the void with just acoustic instruments without a PA. Um, but <laughs> to be honest, I really enjoyed it uh, because it was just nice to get out and perform, you know. Yeah. Oh no, I, I, I am itchy. I, I really enjoyed watching uh, your your live in lockdown with the with the Baker family videos. Uh, they they're a lot of fun. Do you do you do you normally play together, uh, or is this necessity? Well, it's a kind of bit of both, you know. I mean, my daughter Jean has been in my band since I uh, started my own band a couple of years back, and Jeff, the upright bass player, is the bass player in my band. Uh, so uh, if you mean the concert that we did for Spa, where I'm playing harmonica, because mm -hmm. um, uh, I had to play guitar on quite a lot of those recordings because I didn't have a guitar player. Uh, but uh, there also my wife Nico's playing cajon and we play for fun, you know. So uh, mate, she's done the odd gig and I am looking at using that lineup in future because I'm going to be recording some new songs in a, a more acoustic vein than the last albums I've done. Cool. Uh, yeah, I love playing acoustically, you know. Yeah. I mean, for me, the nicest way to play music really is without any microphones mm. or amplifiers or anything, just like chamber music. That's how it sounds best and how you can communicate most directly, I think. I, I totally agree that there's there's so much fun to be had doing something properly live and acoustic without having to deal with all of the, the paraphernalia. Uh, it's just so difficult to, to manage in, in a normal gig environment. And I, I'm sure you've done your share of pub gigs where yeah, you, you sure. almost have to be brash and too loud and amplified to get any kind of attention happening. Well, uh, I usually tend to play more sort of concerty situations and I have to say I have no hesitation in telling people to shut up nice. none, <laughs> at all. none at all uh, if they don't want to listen to my music then they can leave uh, and uh, you know it's I, I'm not into playing for people to uh, eat and chatter to you know I don't do it basically Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's go back in time a little bit and, and get a little bit of your origin story because you don't sound particularly uh, German. Uh, so uh, tell us a little bit about uh, how how you find yourself where you are and and where you actually started off. 
Well, I'm a Londoner by birth of Scottish descent, and um, I lived in London. Apart from when I, you know, went went to study, I studied in Reading, and I spent a lot of time uh, in southern Scotland, also in my sort of late teens, early twenties. But um, basically, uh, I grew up in Britain, but I'd already traveled a bit uh, as a young hippie, you know, I went to uh, Afghanistan overland when you still could and did some stuff like that. And um, so I was always kind of from how I saw the rest of the world, I was always an internationalist. I was never a sort of particularly Anglo-centric. Uh, I always loved the idea of traveling and going and seeing other countries and meeting people from other cultures. So when the band that I started playing with in the mid-70s in London, Have Mercy, uh, was invited to come to Germany to do some gigs in the summer of 76, I just, you know, we jumped at the opportunity uh, because the music scene in Britain as it still is, uh, was then poorly paid, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I realised we could actually go somewhere else and be wined and dined and treated like, you know, as if we had some significance rather than as a bunch of uh, beggars uh, <laughs> and even get paid, I just thought, well, that's rather nice, isn't it, you know. So um, I came to Germany for three weeks and I'm still here. <laughs> that's brilliant and that's... Uh... What's this? Some some 40, 40 plus years later. Yeah, it's forty five years this it's year. Brilliant. You know, yeah, yeah. But I never regretted it. I mean, it's been for me personally uh, very good because mm. I've, um, you know, founded a family and have uh, always been able to live from playing music, which was a dream for me mm. when I lived in Britain. I couldn't have really imagined it. It would have been very difficult. I think without you know having additional sources of income yeah i think that that's that's definitely a, a recurring theme with with musicians i chat to uh uk-based mu musicians that uh uh well mainland europe full stop seems to be a lot more caring about uh people playing music than uh, than the uk is and uh we're, 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 well, I, I definitely mainly do play those pub gigs where i'm playing to people eating and there isn't yeah. a huge amount of the kind of purposeful concert going um yeah but it's, uh, it's good that you've you found that that good place for it well i was i basically when i realized that i could um make a living even if it wasn't you know a fantastic living it was better than the one i had in london and uh I think the most important thing for me is the respect, what you just said, caring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, People have a different attitude to the performing arts, generally speaking, because the problem in Britain for me is that it's a very classist society. Uh, class consciousness is very present in Britain still, I believe. Mm -hmm. And... Um, so it's like if you're really successful as a musician or whatever, then, of course, people think you're great. But if you're not, they think you're a bum. And, um, well, they are, they, they're not treated uh, in generally, uh, in general, you know, as well as in many European countries, put it like that. 
And uh, that's, of course, why it's going to be uh, rather problematic for British musicians in future due mm. to the uh, rather unwise decision to um, stop freedom of movement because that's going to make touring in Europe very problematic. Certainly much more expensive, much more bureaucratic, but maybe impossible for you know small acts, club acts, indie acts. Uh, it's not going to be uh, easy. And I think that that's uh, going to cause major problems for an awful lot of performing artists. Oh, no doubt. And and it's, it's probably going to go both ways. I'm assuming it's going to be complicated for... European acts to come in to the UK as well and well we don't do it because you don't get paid yeah. uh, I mean uh, I know quite a lot of you know people who are really great and perform small concerts club acts all over Europe uh, but virtually none of them play in the UK mm-hmm. uh, I mean I'd love to I'd be delighted to play in the UK but um, it's a bit difficult to do it for nothing because yeah. the overheads you've got to pay. And uh, so in the end, it's like, well, if I'm going to go and see my friends in, in Britain, you know, then uh, I'd rather just have a holiday yeah. than um, go through the grief of, you know, playing under not particularly great conditions for bad money. It's um, I'd rather just have a nice holiday. Definitely. So uh, you, you moved to Germany, but let, let's go even further back. Um, what What kind of started the the musical journey were you born into a musical family or is it something that you discovered yourself well uh i i didn't realize it but my uh grandparents had actually played music on my father's side uh, but my parents kept this very quiet and never told me about it because i guess they (laughs) didn't want me to get the idea of becoming a musician and i was told as a kid that in school you know that i was utterly unmusical sit at the back shut up and uh you know so i tended to believe my teachers until i discovered the harmonica or more accurately the harmonica discovered me um and uh the first time that i really got one I basically was fascinated by it I was 16 Mm -hmm. and uh, I taught myself to play from records and um, realized that I maybe my teachers were wrong you know maybe I was actually quite musical because I taught myself to play guitar parallel to that as well Uh, mainly also by ear by listening to records and figuring out the chords and oh, I mean, I'm not a very good guitarist, but I've uh, I learned parallel to playing the harp, which was mm-hmm. very useful for my harmonica playing as well. Definitely, and, and you, you learned in in a time pre YouTube. Uh, you know, you didn't didn't have it all handed to you, which uh, there weren't even any books then. The, the only book on blues harmonica in the uh, late '60s was Tony Glover's blues harp book, mm-hmm. which I looked at. I went to Dobell's record shop in uh, Charing Cross Road in London which was a brilliant place to go and listen to import records and I couldn't didn't have the money to buy them but I listened to quite a few and I saw this book in the rack of music books and I leafed through it but I was kind of put off by the hipster language and the lack of general precision you know uh, and I thought, oh, I'm not really going to get very much from this so I didn't buy it or I didn't nick it um <laughs> 
so uh, there wasn't any any way to learn, and there was hardly any harmonica players around, uh, so you couldn't really take any lessons. It's a very different time now, you know. I mean, yeah. now there's, as you said, YouTube, but there's also any amount of literature, any amount of people prepared to share their knowledge, uh, you know, with others. So it's a quite a different situation in in terms of learning any musical instrument. Mm-hmm. I think it's become a lot easier now. Oh, definitely. But so is, is this maybe uh, a reason for, for you writing the, the Harp Handbook? Did, did you feel like you needed to create that educational resource that, that maybe you yeah. didn't have? Yes, definitely. Uh, that will basically have been the reason. It's like I just thought, well, nobody else has done it, so I will. And uh, I just started working for Honer at the time when I wrote it. And um, I had figured out some fairly fundamental things about how the harmonica worked from observation, like how bending and overblowing notes worked, what actually happened. And this was unknown at that mm-hmm. time, the late 80s. Nobody could explain to you why can you bend the draw note in hole four but not the blow note. Nobody could tell you that. And um, I figured it out. And I figured out what happened with basically opening and closing reads Uh, And then had the good fortune at the time when I was writing the Harp Handbook to run into um, the wonderful Robert Johnston in Melbourne in Australia, who's a physicist at Monash University, or he was then, and he did a paper on uh, for Acoustics Australia, a learned journal about what happens when you bend and overblow notes on the harmonica. He built a sort of device to simulate it, like a vacuum cleaner that blew two ways. Uh, so you could put it into, you know, blow and draw mode. And he hooked it up to a harmonica with some sort of little mouthpiece thing. And he found that, he and he put in between the vacuum cleaner and his harmonica mouthpiece thingy, a bicycle pump, so that you had a variable air column right a bicycle pump like this yeah yeah? and he um found that he could bend and overblow every note on the instrument like that and he actually wrote down all the physics of it so he was confirming what i'd basically empirically stumbled upon myself uh, which is why i quoted him in the harp handbook um he, he, he put the maths together. Mm. He actually wrote the formulas which describe it, you know, and you can still get it. His work was used as a basis by Antaki and Barnson and people like that later on. But, you know, for me, really, I mean, all of this sort of the academic approach to harmonica is something which I embarked on because I could mm-hmm. um, and because I can write. So I thought, OK, you know, I'll try and put this stuff to paper but my interest has always been uh in playing music and i play music for a very different reason i'm not interested in impressing people with my you know brilliance or anything like that it's a waste of time um and there's so many people who are now nowadays much more brilliant than I am. You know, if you listen to all of these, like you mentioned Constantine, for example, before, you know. So uh, that is all stuff which 
has never really been a motivating factor for me in the last 35 years at least uh, because I'm much more interested in communicating with my music. I want to touch people's hearts and that's why I play music. Yeah, which is is, is the, the right reason, I think. Um, there's a, a lot, lot less ego in that, which is, uh, which is good. Um, so you've, you've had a kind of 40 plus year career uh, in music um, as, as kind of more of a, a side player, session, session guy um, up and until... And accompanist. And I've, accompanist. I've been, I've been an accompanist basically all my uh-huh. life, yeah. Uh, but then recently you started recording your, your own material and, uh, and being the kind of the solo act. Uh, how, how's that been? How's that transition been? Exciting. Um, I always wrote songs. I've been writing songs for over 40 years, though not very prolifically. Um, but I realized that I was never going to be able to get the people that I was accompanying to play any number of my songs. Uh, because they either wanted to play their songs or uh, they were too much into being alpha wolves to actually tolerate anybody next to them. Um, And I realised that if you want to do this, you're going to have to do it yourself. Um, And uh, so I decided I would just go for it. And I um, took the risk of failure because I didn't know if I could sing well enough to do it and I didn't know if the songs were any good. I just thought, well, if I don't try it, then I'll never know. So I went ahead, made the first record, which I've, I believe, got here somewhere. Perfect Getaway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, that came out three years ago. And uh, it turned out really well. I was really pleased with it, you know. And so I put a band together to play the stuff live and have been playing since the record came out with a band um, with which I then recorded the follow-up album, The Great Divide, um, which, as you can see, is also available in 12-inch vinyl as well as CD. Um, But... uh, For me, it's been a very intensive learning experience because I was being forced to do a load of things I'd never done before, fronting a band, being the main focus of attention, and singing everything, as well as playing the harmonica. It's quite hard work. It's a lot harder work than just sort of kicking back and accompanying a singer. Uh, And I love accompanying singers. I've had the privilege of accompanying some very, very good ones and playing with some, you know, brilliant musicians. So that's been very rewarding and I still like doing it. But I have to say, uh, performing my own material and uh, writing and arranging it uh, is something which I really enjoy. It's wonderful. And um, learning to sing better because I always sang but I just never really had the the confidence to you know develop my voice um has been a very uh inspiring experience I found it's been fantastic Uh, and I hope to be able to continue doing it again as soon as possible but uh the thing is that 
pushes the harmonica a little bit back, it's then no longer the center. Because one thing that I was very clear about is I'm never going to make a harmonica record. I've mm -hmm. done that. I did that 35 years ago. I've just, I'm just now re-releasing the Free Fall Sessions, which I recorded in 1986, which is harmonica instrumental music with 80s technology with like sequences and lind drums and lots of keyboards, you know, played by studio musicians. Um, and I have no interest really in going back down that path because I'm not very harmonica obsessive in music. I love harmonica and I really, really like to use it well and supportively in a musical context. But I don't agree with the philosophy of many, many contemporary harmonica players that it should be the middle point. It's for me, mm. it never will be in my own music. It's something which I add if I think it'll add something to a song, but it's not something that I write songs around. And are there new records that you've been uh, working on during lockdown? Are you, I mean, are you ready to, to kind of do new stuff with the, the solo material? Yeah, sure. I've got half a dozen new songs um, that have, you know, come up over the last uh, year or so since I released the last record. Because uh, The Great Divide came out in March a year ago. And since then, I've come up with a few more songs, which I'm going to start recording in about two weeks' time, um, where I'll probably play some guitar myself and then put down um, vocals and then add upright bass, percussion, more guitars played by people who can play them better than me and a bit of harmonica and harmony vocals and just sort of see how I get along um, because it's becoming both very expensive and very unrewarding to release physical albums. Mm -hmm. Um, they're useful at gigs if you have gigs because then you can sell a few if your audience is as old as mine, you know, then. But I mean, a lot of a lot of young people now, they haven't even got a CD player. Maybe they'll have a turntable, maybe they'll buy vinyl, uh, but almost everyone under the age of about 50 um, today doesn't buy CDs anymore you know they uh, they basically use Spotify or mm -hmm. other download you know stream formats and so I'm trying to figure out the best way to go about it and I'll just first of all record the music get it so that I think it's good and then see what the best most effective way is to actually release it but I'm very glad to have a good ongoing relationship with Time Zone Records in Osnabrück in Germany, which is a great independent label where uh, they're very supportive and where I know they like my work. So, uh, you know, they'll continue to release it. And I'm now re-releasing, like I said, this um, instrumental record I made in the 80s. And I'm also intending to release, re-release the first Have Mercy LP, which we made when we first came to Germany in 77, uh, which is basically raucous punk music played on acoustic instruments using blues as a medium, you know, jug band, basically. Mm -hmm. 
the Judd Band from Hell, uh, <laughs> with, you know, really like insane energy. Basically, we invented folk punk uh, about 15 years before the Pogues. Oh, wow. F 15 years too early? Do you think? Uh, I don't know. I couldn't tell you, really. I mean, in the end, I've had the misfortune throughout my life to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, so that most of the things that I've embarked on have never been particularly commercially successful. I was in a great band here in Germany in the early 80s, tough enough. We had a complete program of original material, some of which I've actually now re-recorded on the uh, Perfect Getaway album, on my first solo album, um, where, uh, unfortunately, it was at the time of the Neue Deutsche Welle, which is the German new wave, and they were all singing in German. We were singing in English. Nobody would touch us, uh, even though it was a great band, you know. And I've been through that kind of experience many times over because success in popular music is nothing. It's not a meritocracy. It's a matter mm -hmm. of being lucky, being in the right place at the right time, and then having good material. But if you're not in the right place and it ain't the right time then it doesn't really matter how good your material is because nobody's going to uh, you know pick up on it so uh, I don't really worry about stuff like that no and and I mean you know your longevity kind of attests to that uh, that's that was a, a, a far better move and, and you probably have been in the right place uh, at the right time in terms of managing to sustain a career because uh, a well, very few people manage it in music. Very few yeah. people manage it as harmonica players, even fewer than <laughs> yeah. other instrumentalists. So, uh, it's yeah, impressive. absolutely right. I mean, I'm, I have to say I'm profoundly grateful for it. You know, I've been able to basically live a really nice life. I mean, I've never been wealthy, but I'm not poor. And uh, that's that's cool. Being not that's poor very is a, cool. <laughs> you know, that's that's a pretty good state of affairs, and to have been able to do that from the harmonica is a miracle. I can only say, yeah, I'm I'm very very grateful. But what made a huge difference for me was also my very lengthy association with the Hona Company, which started as soon as we got established in Hamburg, because. Um, we uh, in Have Mercy, we had a lot of harmonica players. We had mm -hmm. three at one time. Sometimes Rory McLeod was a member. Oh wow! If you, if you know Rory, oh, yeah. He was, uh, yeah, Rory was an original member of Have Mercy, and me and Henry Hagen, who's another great harmonica player, and a fourth harmonica player, Jon Eccles. We had we had more harmonicas than anybody ever dreamed could possibly uh -huh. play together in a blues context, you know. And so we needed a lot of harps because we were street musicians we trashed instruments mm. like nothing you know we would just go through a harp maybe the first time you put it in your mouth it would be blown already because you had to play incredibly loudly mm -hmm. and uh, or at least i at that time being a bit ignorant thought that you had to play incredibly loudly not realizing that opera singers can fill halls with a you know without amplification so if you learn you can mm -hmm. of course play much more projectionally you know but we trashed a lot of harmonicas and so our manager hooked us up with the local honer um 
distributor warehouse. It was actually part of the Hona company. And I used to be the designated harmonica buyer and would go along there and buy for everybody because uh, I would just go through. There was a time when the quality was poor and I would simply go through the instruments and reject well, mm-hmm. 50% of them easily. Uh, and I you know, would complain vociferously about the poor quality. And uh, I was started doing a lot of studio work for sort of MOR, German Schlager mostly, you know, but um, stuff that the people at Hona had heard of. If, if you say, oh, I've just made a record with James Last, then that does strike a chord with them, mm-hmm. you know, uh, or Roger Whittaker or people like that. So um, that gave me an in and I was... Uh, an endorsee from a very early stage and got progressively closer to the company with the passage of time until I finally pitched them a a consultancy uh, offer because uh, that basically helped me very much as a separate thing, a separate source of income. And also I think it probably helped I think it probably helped Honer a great deal because um, they, you know, they needed somebody who was coming from the the hands-on rock and roll-y side of the mm. music scene rather than sort of middle of the road or harmonica trios. And um, I was able to fill that role, basically. So that was uh, also a big help. You know. It feels like like you became involved with Hona and ha- have been part of the kind of great revival of the company with with the instruments getting much better quality over the last kind of ten fifteen years, especially. Uh, I, I I was reading that you were involved in developing uh, kind of the new the new marine bands, the deluxes, the crossovers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's that's a huge deal because I, I think a lot of a lot of people don't realize that harmonicas weren't that great for quite a chunk of time, uh, and that's kidding. why customizing became such a big trend. Um, Very true. But I don't think customizing is quite so important these days because of the quality of the instruments coming out of uh, all the companies now have kind of upped their game quite a lot. Well, they've been forced to, and mm-hmm. um, that was something which uh, was for me, really, really important because I spent a long time trying to convince people at Hona that you could assemble a marine band harmonica with screws, for example. You didn't have to nail it together, you know. And they were said, oh, no, it's not possible because the tines of the comb are too thin. And the answer is very simple. You don't put screw holes through the tines of the comb, you know. You yeah. put them along the back. Uh, and I was good friends with the customizing fraternity from a very, very early stage, Joe Felisco and uh, Richard Slay being the first, but also other people here, Tony Ramos and other people in Europe who were, you know, doing work based on the work that was pioneered by Felisco. And also Rick Epping, one would have to say, from the Hona Company, because Rick was also one of the very first people to introduce things like reed slot embossing and stuff like this. And also introduced the retooling, which raised the standard of the Hona reed plates enormously. Um, So I was 
in close contact with the people who were basically bringing out what Hona should have been doing, bringing mm-hmm. out the best harmonicas in the world. And it took a long time, but I was eventually able to convince them that this was viable and uh, that we needed to respond to the improvements which were being introduced by customizers. And uh, the first step was the Marine Band Deluxe, which was take a Marine Band, improve the covers, make them more stable, open them up, uh, and seal the comb and assemble the whole thing with screws. And then I suggested, because the company had been looking for a renewable resource to make comb material, you know, for comb material, and I suggested, why not try bamboo? And we tried bamboo. I tested loads of different kinds of bamboo laminate. And uh, the result ended up being a marine band crossover, which, you know, I think was uh, a resounding success. If you like marine bands, then that's the instrument, you know. Though the deluxe is also a great harmonica. And for me, though, and then, of course, this was followed by the Thunderbird, where we basically adopted Felisco's cover design of the mm. asymmetrical bottom cover um, which I s- managed to convince them was the best way to go and then I was also fortunately able to convince Joe that he should let them use his idea and they credited him for it and that's mm. why his signatures on the cover I insisted on that that they have to credit him uh, it's something which other harmonica manufacturers like Suzuki who've nicked that idea have not done I would point mm. out you know because it is Joe's idea he invented that yeah um, well I, I'm a huge fan of the, the deluxe and the crossover I have I'm, I'm looking at a rack of them in, in front of me on my desk so <laughs> thank, thank you for being involved in that <laughs> hey it was a pleasure it was it was actually a, a, a decent job reasonably well done you know <laughs> that's fantastic well listen I, I'm, I'm I'm very mindful of not uh, taking up too much of your time and I really appreciate you chatting with with me today uh, is it is is it okay if I ask a, a few questions just quick ones uh, from my my students as they were they were excited that i was chatting you today yeah sure um, i'd just like to say one thing first if that's all right of course which is that um if anyone is not familiar with my recorded work as well as these two uh, recent albums on time zone records i made four cds with the late great chris jones which as far as i'm concerned are up there with any guitar harmonica duo that's ever recorded uh they're really beautiful records chris was one of the greatest acoustic guitarists of all time he tragically died very young in 2005 after we just finished our fourth album together Uh, those four albums slow roll um everybody's crying mercy smoke and noise and gotta look up are all still available on Acoustic Music Records, another German label also based in the town of Osnabrück, which has an excellent catalogue of, as the name says, acoustic music. And if anyone's interested in listening to some really cool harmonica, guitar, vocal, duo material, then check out those albums. And uh, I'll just add that 
everything that Steve's mentioned uh, in terms of, of good stuff to check out is available in the show notes. There are links to go straight there for everyone listening. Oh, thank Make you. it a bit easier. <laughs> uh, cool. So um, this is a question from Tony who wants to know if there will be a Kindle or ebook version of the Harp Handbook uh, so he can read it in the dark. Now that would be nice, but the page format is a bit small uh, because you've got some quite big diagrams and stuff like that. I haven't uh, made any attempts to do this. And at the moment, the publishing rights are with Hal Leonard for the Harp Handbook. So I suppose I should approach them. It's a good idea. Thanks for the suggestion. I'll see if I can follow up on it. Cool. Uh, and we've got another question about your uh, SBS harmonicas. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Tony wants to know uh, what, what the range is of them and uh, whether they're still available. They've uh, discontinued the 14-hole SBS. Um, I'm, it may be that they, they did a rocket 10-hole version. I'm not quite sure. I know I got one as a prototype, but I don't know if they actually did it as a series instrument. The thing is the range of the 14 hole SBS is four octaves plus, I think plus plus a third. Uh, and that is because that was the format of, of comb and cover that they had mm-hmm. available for the big marine bands. The large marine bands came in two versions, the 364 with 12 holes and the 365 with 14 holes. and this, if you imagine that you've got one in C, then the bottom octave is an octave lower than a regular C harp, and it goes up to one hole above the highest hole of a regular C harp. Now, I changed the tuning, but not the range. So the range is exactly the same. I simply changed the tuning of the bottom three holes so that they correspond to the regular bottom three holes on a 10-hole harp, but one octave lower. Um, and uh, I mean, it's a cool idea. I used it quite a lot on my records with Chris. Um, but when I got more into tongue blocking, I discovered that the dimensions, the physical size of the instrument just made it really quite hard to enclose properly. Mm-hmm. And I kind of drifted away from using it uh, because I just... I've spent quite a lot of time as a sort of late starter with the tongue block, uh, intensively figuring out how to do it reasonably well. And uh, the the SBS format, the the big marine band format, is just rather clumsy. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I haven't played it for a while personally. Interesting. Okay, and and our final question, which uh, is is potentially a little bit more philosophical, uh, depending on how you take it. But Mike wants to know uh, how how does one avoid sounding samish uh, when improvising? Uh, does it just come with experience slash skill slash knowledge, or do you have some kind of rough plan uh, that you start with? That's a very very good question. Um, I would say that unless you're really particularly brilliant, it takes most of us quite a long time to reach a point where we learn to express ourselves both creatively and in a varied way. Um, Because a lot of what 
musicians tend to do is just repeating licks. And I know some very, very good musicians, really brilliant, technically brilliant musicians, who unfortunately tend to repeat the same licks all the time, again and again. Um, only people don't notice because it's very fast. Um, I name no names, but there are people I've worked with who uh, have been exemplary in that respect. And so I reckon that one of the things that I often do, obviously I do this as well, I fall back on a certain range of stock options. But the thing that you want to do is, first of all, to figure out different ways of combining scale notes, because most of the music that we play is modal music, right? It doesn't, it's not using many different scales or different chords. It's basically in one key and using a mode, like let's say the mixolydian mode or the minor pentatonic mode or whatever. Yeah? And so one of the things that's really good to learn is different ways of moving around in that scale so that you don't just have to go like, You can also go. It's the same notes, yeah? But I'm simply putting them in a different order. So it's like take a phrase and then vary it. So you know. Yeah, where this is all just it's the same notes, but you're just sort of moving around in a slightly different way between them uh, by playing alternating scale notes, for example. Bam, ba, bam, like, you know, instead of... playing alternate notes, for example. Um, so it's a matter of how you approach the supply of notes from which you are selecting your impro notes. And that is, like I say, in modal music, it'll be the notes of the scale you're using, blues scale, minor pentatonic, or whatever it is. Um, and the other thing is that I try when I'm going to start a solo, because with songs, if I play them regularly, I have arrangements. And some solos, I will play pretty much the same, but often I deliberately just try to make my mind go blank and go into the solo without knowing what I'm going to do. Because there, you, if you are relaxed and in the flow of the music, the music will tell you what to play. Excellent, excellent advice. And uh, a, a, probably a, a perfect place to, to conclude uh, a very enjoyable conversation. Uh, thank you so much for spending the time with me today, Steve. It's been great. Um, so like I said before, I'm putting all the stuff that you mentioned in the show notes for people to easily get to it. Is there anything anywhere else I should be directing people, websites, Facebooks, that kind of thing? Yeah, uh, my website is uh, stevebaker.de, although it's not much use to you at the moment because there's no gigs. Uh, I'm on Facebook uh, as Steve Baker Harmonica or as Steve Baker. You can, you know, send me a friend request if anyone's interested in corresponding. I'm fairly easy to reach. Uh, I do online lessons, should anybody wish to, um, though not a great deal, but I, you know, I, if I've got time, I'll do it. Um, 
And is there anything else? Any other publications or anything? Yes, there's something I wanted to say. I released three volumes of blues harmonica play-alongs, which are real high-end practice material for diatonic harmonica players, not just in traditional blues, but in quite a wide range of related genres. And I have now finally got the rights to the English language versions as digital books, uh, where I've got the entire book as a PDF and the music as MP3s. And what these are, are collections of instrumental titles, which I wrote and transcribed for harp with great a great band accompanying them. And on the record on the, the mp3s you have two versions of each song one with my harmonica and one without as a playback to jam along to and in the pdf you get the complete notation and a blow by blow account of how i actually did the various things in the in the track you know the 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 technical bits so if anybody is interested, Blues Harmonica Play-Alongs Volumes 1 to 3 will be available from Time Zone Records, from their um, online shop, within the next few weeks. I don't think they're there yet. I just made the deal yesterday, so it's going to take a little while to get them up. But I hope that they will be available within the next few weeks. And this is, I think, the only material I've heard on this level of quality, you know, where, the, like I say, cool tunes, a great band, and uh, a complete analysis of how to deal with the tunes. So if anyone's looking for practice material, check out Blues Harmonica Play-Alongs from the Time Zone Records web shop. It's timezone-records.de, I think, but you can find it quite easily. Cool. I'll link that up as well. Well, Please, thank you so that, much. That would be great. Thank you, Tom. Lynn. It's <laughs> been nice talking. I hope it's been interesting for anyone who's listening. I'd say hi to everybody in Edinburgh and wherever else you're listening from. <laughs> and uh, hope that it will be possible to meet in person in the not too distant future. Fingers crossed. I mean, I, I'm definitely going to be organizing a workshop as soon as uh, as soon as I get the go ahead from the government. They, they have me on speed dial. I'm the first person that's going to be told. <laughs> <laughs> hey, great. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Then you too, Tomlin. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of my harmonica podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on your podcast service of choice. And if you're ready to take your harmonica playing to the next level, then you should check out my online harmonica school over at tomlinharmonicaschool.com. Happy harping!